0: Hello ninjas and ninjats, and welcome to another episode of the Exposure Ninja Digital Marketing Podcast. My name's Tim Cameron Kitchen, best-selling digital marketing author and head ninja at Exposure Ninja, which is a digital agency based in the UK. In this episode, I'm joined by possibly the smartest person I've ever spoken to. I'm joined by Jessica Ma. Now, Jess runs Indonero, which is an accounting services company based in the US. She is painfully young she's 27 years old and she's grown in dinero to over 150 staff I think it is and raised over 11 million dollars in investment but being through a whole process where the company almost went down and then she brought it back up she's been profiled in Inc. magazine as part of their 30 under 30 and she was on the cover of their 5000 issue and also in Forbes 30 under 30 as well so razor razor sharp and Jess takes us through the whole story about Indonero, how she decided to pivot and how she changed their offering. We also go behind the scenes on their marketing, as you would expect as well, talking about the lead capture that they use on the site and their sales process to get people on board with the uh, with the Indonero service. We also talk about starting a business and whether to go for investment or whether to go for, you know, making the business profitable as soon as you possibly can and just has done both and she talks us through her opinions there. So really interesting interview, and I think you're gonna get a lot from it. Jess has so much experience, even though she's only 27 years old, which is amazing. And don't forget, if you're running your own digital marketing, if you don't have the budget to pay for an agency like Exposure Ninja to do your marketing work for you, then we run a training site called Marketing U, marketing and then letter U inside marketing you you can watch videos which show you how to run your own digital marketing campaign so whether it's optimizing your website for search whether it's building landing pages running google adwords campaigns running facebook ads campaigns even if you have no technical expertise at all the videos inside marketing you will show you exactly what to do you just copy the instructions on the screen and apply it to your business and all the videos and everything inside marketing U is based on our own experience working with hundreds of clients in every imaginable market across the world. So it's all based on real life. This is not just a whole bunch of theories. So head over to marketingu.ninja That's marketing and then the letter u.ninja. Anyway, without further ado, enjoy the show with Jess. Welcome to the show, Jessica.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: So you're CEO of Indonero. For those who don't know Indonero yet, perhaps you could tell us a bit about what it's all about and who it's for.
1: Great. I started Indonero about five years ago. We do accounting and taxes for small and medium-sized businesses. And we do all the software. We do the services. We take care of everything that you would pay an outsourced accountant to do. And I started the business because when I was doing accounting and taxes for my last business, I thought, wow, this is a real nightmare, nightmare process. Like I have to figure out how to hire the right bookkeeper, then get the right tax person, and then put together QuickBooks and all these other softwares together. And I have to manage my own finance department, essentially. And I don't even know if they're going to scale with me as my business grows. So why isn't there a very tech-centric business that's modern and virtual that could be my finance department for me and that's how indenera was born
0: perfect i can totally understand the need as well because i don't know too many entrepreneurs that are particularly finance orientated right it kind of tends to be the thing that they don't really think about too much they're all about growth and getting the product right and that sort of stuff tends to fall in the to the wayside doesn't it
1: oh yeah totally it's often one of the last things people care about and for my my first business we had a lot of uh, finance challenges because we were an asset-heavy business. You know, we had to buy servers and I wasn't managing my cash flow properly. And I thought, hmm, if I had better info on this, if I really understood my customer margins and my cash payback time a lot better, then I that business would have done a lot better. And so this topic
0: is dear and dear to my heart. Very cool. So Indonero didn't start out as the full concierge service, did it? It started out with a slightly different value proposition?
1: Yeah, at first we thought, why don't we build a um, mint.com for businesses? That was what we called it at the time. And the thesis was, could we build software that would be painlessly easy to do your accounting? And you didn't need to hire anyone. It's just pure software. And we would download data from your banks and your credit card accounts. And then we'd give you a lot of uh, analytics and data on top so that you can see how your business is doing. And it sounded really good at the time. A lot of people gave us money for it. But there were so many challenges with it. I mean, A, if you don't have the service piece, which we didn't, the customers, you know, they couldn't justify a high price point for what we were offering. And two, we just couldn't get data from the banks and the credit cards automatically. Like you would need someone to physically go into the bank account, download lots of data for years and years and years, and then import that manually into Nanair. Like there's no way to do this through software in an easy way. And we didn't realize that until you we were knee deep into the idea. So, so I, I guess that's a long way of saying we had a lot of assumptions for how this would unfold and many of them did not play out.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so quite challenging. And, and it sounds like you had the, the kind of typical SaaS model where you'd have a freemium, so like a free version for people to just get them hooked on. And then you wanted to upgrade them into a paid version. Is that right?
1: Yeah, that was the idea. And we raised like a million dollars after just what, three months of being a company and, and got a lot of media for it. So we were like pretty out there already. Like we didn't really give ourselves any time to vet the model. We just thought it'd work. And we wanted to run as fast as possible. And uh, ended up we were just running into a wall.
0: <laughs> so <laughs> how, how close did you get to the wall before you decided that things needed to change?
1: Uh, we were, we were pretty much beyond the wall at that point. Cause we were <laughs> in through all of our capital pretty much. I mean, I tried to go out and raise more capital cause I thought, oh yeah, I've got an, I've got a brand now and we got users, but you know, people could tell that the core thesis of the business wasn't going to work out when I went in to pitch for it. And so I thought, huh, barring a miracle, we would have to either change paths or the company just wouldn't work out. So I, I felt cornered. And I didn't know what to do. So, you know, I hired probably five or six of my closest friends from college. And then I told all of them that they had to find a new job because we didn't have any money to pay them. And then we had some venture debt that I raised, so half a million bucks. So we were now in debt. (laughs) And, uh, you know, the banks don't really like it when you actually use their capital. Like they want to stay net neutral on the cash position and know that you're raising new equity to pay them back. But, and I was trying to raise new equity. I just wasn't getting any offers for, for new equity. So uh, that was really stressful. And and then it was just my co-founder and I for a while working out of our apartment and eating ramen and living off of uh, Whole Foods gift cards because we had a lot of credit card points accumulated from the prior year burning through a million dollars.
0: At least it was Whole Foods, right?
1: <laughs> yeah, at least it was Whole Foods. Really expensive. Uh, <laughs> so we switched to Costco. <laughs>
0: That that sounds like a horrendously stressful period. Oh yeah, it was the worst. Was there a particular moment that you realized, okay, this is this is not working. We need to change track.
1: The moment came. It was kind of a slow process. There was no like, oh aha, uh-huh, like our path is really messed up and it's not going to work. Like no, I just kind of knew all along that something was off. Like my spider senses were just not going the way I I was thinking they would. And one of my investors, Steve Blank, he wrote The Four Steps of the Epiphany and The Startup Manual. He's a professor at Berkeley, Columbia, Stanford, and, and he became a mentor of mine. And he's like, hey, Jessica, it's not too late to change your business. And I thought, huh, like, what do you mean it's not too late? Like, my business is just fine. He's like, Jessica, you and I both know things are not fine. Like, it's not too late. This is not a permanent issue. And that's when I started to think, oh my God, I'm in deep trouble here. <laughs> and um and I think I went back home, thought about it for a few nights, and then made the call to cut all of our expenses down to nothing. And the second I made that decision, like it like it was literally a one minute thing. I was with some friends in my apartment and one of my friends was saying, Hey, like, you know, you can just lay everyone off and then run it like a skeleton ship till you figure out the new model. And then I realized, huh. Like that sounds like actually a great idea, and my friend was saying, actually I was just joking. Like that, that's just like a really extreme thing to do. And I'm like, huh, that actually sounds like a really good idea. Let's do that. And I slept on it for a night. Next morning, I still felt good. And then we, uh, I like did the-, the talk with everyone by the end of that day.
0: Wow. So the talk was with your friends to let them go, right? Pretty much,
1: yeah. That was really rough. I mean, all of them were understanding. All of them wanted the best for us and for the business and they're all smart people. So I knew they'd find jobs really quickly.
0: Oh, I had to do a similar thing with with our agency a long time ago. Um, but yeah, you it's one of those things where you remember exactly where you were, you remember exactly what you're doing. It just it kind of sticks with you, doesn't it really not fun at all?
1: Ah, oh, no, not fun at all. And then when you do it, then it's like, oh, that was thank thank gosh, that that's over now.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so you decided to pivot and change your offering and offer more of a concierge service. So how did you decide that that was gonna be a more productive and ultimately more profitable service?
1: It was really customer centric because I started to talk to more customers and I said, hey, what would give you the most value? What would solve the biggest pain point for you? And I wanted to get back to customer roots. And the common denominator was, well, The problem with Indonera right now is that it's just pure software. Like, I still need to hire someone to use Indonera. And so you're not really fixing one of the biggest problem pain points I have. And then I still have to hire a tax person on top of the bookkeeper. And I thought, huh, maybe there's an opportunity there. What if we do the bookkeeping? And what if we file the taxes, but we do it in a streamlined, better way than a normal bookkeeper and tax person would? And... You'll just pay us and we'll take care of all of it for you. Like it'll all happen behind the scenes. And my friends were super excited about it. And they're like, "Uh, yeah, sign me up. I'll be one of the first to use that. And so my first probably 30 customers on the concierge model, they were all just my friends. Like I went through my phone book, my Facebook, my LinkedIn. I, I just called all my entrepreneur friends and I said, hey, like, what do you think of this new integrated software service for accounting play? That's way better than what you're going to get from any other accountant. And pretty much everyone said, wow, this is awesome. And that's when I knew I was on something.
0: That's really interesting. It feels like if I was an investor, it feels like I might find it less of a compelling thing to invest in because all of a sudden there's people involved and it's a service rather than SaaS, which is just, you know, you get the thing right and then it just scales. So <laughs> were you ever concerned that because you're adding in more complexity with the people that it was... It was going to be harder to grow it or it's going to be harder to get investment?
1: That's what I initially thought and worried about. And if I worried about that too much, I never would have gone down this path. And I probably wouldn't have gone down any other good viable path for at least this business. And I realized that in accounting, most accountants do work that technology can automate away. And so I thought, all right, if I'm going to be willing to do this for the next, say, 10 years, or more, then I'll be able to slowly but surely get rid of all that mundane work. And no one else is going to have the patience to uh, compete with me because this is such a painful, difficult business. Um, and I knew that some investors would, you know, the short term investor, investors, they would not be cool with it. And the long term ones, they would think, wow, Jessica Ma is a freaking genius.
0: <laughs> That's <laughs> awesome. So- You you saw that complexity and you thought, okay, great. That means I'm serving, I'm solving something that's that's quite painful and quite difficult to solve. This isn't the sort of thing where someone's just going to be able to knock up a quick app and compete with me. This is going to be tough. So, therefore, I'm actually you know building the moat around my business.
1: Exactly. Yeah. This is this is how you create true long term value. And I was obsessed with Warren Buffett at the time. Like I was reading all his books. I was going through, like all his shareholder letters for Berkshire Hathaway. And he always talks about long-term thinking, right? And not just thinking about flipping your business. And I thought, wow, holy cow, this is so different from what I'm used to in Silicon Valley, where everyone's just thinking about the next upround valuation in 18 months. And like everything in Silicon Valley is so short-sighted. It's just kind of mind-blowing to me. And I'm like, huh, well, if Warren Buffett's got, like, a 50-year time frame or 100-year time frame, like, it won't hurt if I have, like, a five-year time frame or a 10-year <laughs> uh, time frame. And uh, so I, I really believe that. And, and I've stood by that. And all my best ideas have come when, one, I get back to the roots of, like, what's really going to be valuable to the customer? And two, what is possible if I have a 10, 20 or 30-year outlook, whereas I know most of my competitors given that they have lots of VC funding. We don't have a lot of VC funding, even though we have, you know, what, 170 and probably by the end of 2018, over three 400 employees. Um, we, we could actually think long term and they can't. So that's also a competitive moat in a way.
0: So you feel that because you're not relying on, on the VC funding that it enables you to think long term? Uh, do you feel like the other businesses that are having to think short-term, they're being forced to think that way because they have investor pressure, whereas you're completely free of that?
1: I believe so. I don't think it's just investor pressure. I think a lot of it's just the fact that they're trying to grow way too fast. And all of the topics at the board meeting revolve around what what's gonna happen for next quarter and what are the numbers for this year gonna be. And while that is important, I think the best advisors and mentors ask, well, what's going to happen in five years from now? Or let's look at 20 years from now. What does this business become? What can it become in 20 years? And so I've surrounded myself with advisors, mentors, investors who ask those questions. If anything, I think maybe they should be a little more short term, but they they trust us to be short term enough. So, you know, we talk about the bigger picture.
0: Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. I think there's so, there's so much value in in, in that as a concept. I want to change track a little bit and ask you about working with a co-founder because as I read that you guys actually went through couples therapy, is that right?
1: Yeah, we did. Well, so my co-founder, he's one of my closest friends. He's like a brother to me. And yeah, we met in college and really hit it off as friends. And, you know, we went through a lot of tough times together because business is really painful. And we had a lot of disagreements as to how we wanted to do a lot of things in the business. I mean, I'm the CEO. Um, He's the CTO, so ultimately the buck stops with me, not with him. And so that was very frustrating for him. And you know, there's a lot of uh, you know, I get pissed off at him if he didn't hit an engineering deadline. He'd get pissed off at me if I didn't hire the right people quickly enough. For Indonera, I just felt that I wanted to run things in a certain way, and and we're we're just having a lot of trouble. So. At a certain point, we're like, huh, like, could we, like, hire a business coach and a therapist or a counselor to help us mediate our communication problems with each other? And so we did both, and it helped dramatically. I mean, that's not to say that we don't still fight about things, but it's definitely helped us figure out, like, what's the other person thinking? The short summary there is if you're in a, I guess, long-term relationship with, uh, you know, with anyone, (laughs) whether it's purely business or purely romantic or whatever, kind of helps to invest in having a mediator of some sorts, I think.
0: Yeah. So how did you guys originally decide how to split responsibility in in, in Denaro? Was it something that because you have different skill sets, it just immediately came natural? Or, or is there some crossover with your with your tendencies that made you kind of have to have a conversation about it?
1: There wasn't a whole lot of cross crossover. I mean, we both studied computer science, and we met in you know discrete mathematics class. So we're both pretty mathy, science, technical people. I'm just a lot more of a people person. Like I'm extremely extroverted. I love talking to people and yapping away. You you really can't shut me up. Whereas for him, he's like the quiet guy. He likes to play board games on a Friday night. I like to go out and. You know, party with my friends, right? Like we're very different personality wise. I have no idea how we're we're still like brother sister level friends. <laughs> and so it was pretty obvious straight away that I was gonna be the one to, you know, grow the business, hire the people, manage everyone, raise the funding, and he was gonna run product and engineering and all the technical challenges. Since even though I could do that, I'm I'm not quite as passionate about it. So it, it worked out pretty well actually. It was really obvious on day one.
0: And I'm assuming working with a co-founder is is something that you would want to do again if you're starting up a new company? Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, I've got several other companies I'm already working on, by the way. So Indonero is my core company. Like it's doing well. I have a chief operating officer, uh, about to hire a new chief financial officer. And so the company's going to run well. It's still my day, 40, 50 hour a week job. But, you know, I want to start some other side businesses for fun too. You know, I'll maybe I'll come back on on the podcast in a few years and tell you all about those and how that turns out. And yeah, I'll, I'll have a co-founder for each one. Like, I'm not going to do everything by myself.
0: OK, that's cool. Because uh, a lot of businesses, you know, a lot of smaller startup businesses that maybe don't look at VC fundings tend to start with a, you know, a solo, solo person, like just one person who, who tries to run the whole thing. And I think one of the things I've noticed running Exposure Ninja has been. How useful it is to have people who have really complementary, really complementary tendencies. You know, the the organizer or the operator with the with the ideas person. So, I'm wondering about if you are talking to people who are thinking of starting a business, would you suggest that they look for a co-founder? And if so, you know, should they look for people with complementary tendencies? Is there is there a kind of makeup which you think makes a, a, a an optimal co-founder?
1: Good question. I I think. Looking for a co-founder is more, the the key thing there is actually looking at yourself and really understanding what do you love doing? What are you really good at? And then, yeah, you're right, finding someone who complements you in every way. And I think that a lot of people should start, start their businesses. And if they find the right partner to come along at some point, that's awesome. But if not, it shouldn't stop them either. Like I'd say no co-founder is better than bad co-founder, because I meet so many companies, uh, so many CEOs who are like, oh my God, my co-founder ended up being a horrible person and we hate each other. And now the company's going to implode because of our sour co-founder relationship. Those cases, it's just better to have no co-founder and you'll just hire the right people, hopefully, and figure it out. It's a little lonelier, but it's not that it can't be done.
0: Yeah, very, very true. Perhaps you could give us a scale of, of where in at. at now in, in terms of the number of, of customers that you guys have? Yeah,
1: I mean, we do accounting and taxes for over a thousand businesses today. So a thousand private businesses that are, you know, anywhere from a few employees to hundreds of employees. So pretty wide spectrum. And that's, yeah, that, that's been really cool. And we have what, like 170 full-time people, and we're probably going to double down the next year.
0: That's amazing. So obviously to to sustain that kind of growth and, and to sustain a business of that size, you, you've got to be doing some some pretty super slick marketing. On the podcast, we, we tend to talk a lot about things like lead capture and, and follow up. And I noticed that the lead capture on your site isn't sign up now, it's not get a free trial or anything like that. It's actually talk to someone. Perhaps you could take us behind the scenes of, of what happens when you fill in that and why you guys opted for a talk to someone link rather than something which is a lot easier and a lot lower lower touch for you uh, for you to kind of get someone on board
1: yeah great question well for ingeniero it's a slightly more sophisticated offering than just signing up for a random piece of software and the commitment level is a lot higher in that you're going to have to trust us to file your taxes and we're going to need you to be part of that process and so it's not just about the customers vetting us it's about us vetting the customers too, because we have so many customers who come in and say, Hey, I wanna use you guys. And we're like, oh no, you're not gonna be the right fit. And so we're we're vetting people out to make sure that they're gonna be high quality customers, not just not just customers. So on the conversion metrics, it does perform slightly better than sign up now because you know, we're not pressuring anyone into anything. We wanna give them the full truth of what we do and how we do it. And if they wanna work with us you know, that's great. If not, then we totally understand. I think that's, that's, that's why people are more likely to go through with at least a call to just learn more. Uh, But conversion was not the driving factor for why we frame it that way.
0: That's really interesting. So you're saying that you actually found that you convert more with the talk to someone versus a, like a typical SaaS sign up now. Yes. Free trial, for example. That's incredible. And Previously, in dinero, when it was you know the Indenero one right instead of the instead of the, the version with the concierge, the CTA there was that was offering a free trial, wasn't it? So, do, do you think that was part of the problem because you weren't vetting people before they came on? It became harder to convert them.
1: Well, before we went to the concierge model, we were more of a pure software play, and so the CTA at the time was get started or sign up now. We tried both. And, but we also tried a bunch of other things that weren't as successful, although the conversion was relatively high. The quality of the signups wasn't very high. So it didn't really matter. Like the conversion didn't matter a whole lot at the end of the day. So I think that's the way of me saying like, sure, look at all of your funnel conversion metrics. That's really important, but also get down and dirty with just like talking to the actual customers and figuring out how do they think about your conversion funnel and Bring that humanistic, qualitative analysis to it. Don't just look at the numbers all the time.
0: I think that's it can be a real danger, can't it, particularly when we're trying to scale something is that we just look at the first step of the funnel, what can we do to absolutely maximize the conversion rate of the website, so get the most signups, like what, what can we offer that gets us the most signups and then look at the next phase rather than looking at the whole funnel and saying, okay, how many people are coming from the website and turning into a paid customer? And even if we're willing to sacrifice some conversion at the very first stage of the funnel, that's okay. Because the goal is not just to get people signing up for something random. The goal is to get people <laughs> signing up who are going to become a customer, isn't it? So do you know your current conversion rate from website to, to to talk to someone, the 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 form conversion rate?
1: Yeah, right now, we actually track it by a lead source. So it's not just, I don't like looking at it from an overall number perspective because People come in from different sources and then it's going to be very different. So like, for example, um, if they're just coming in straight to the website, then it's going to be sub 1%. But if they're coming to your website from like a blog or something, and they're looking at learning more, then it's more like 5 6%. And so you got to get really detailed as to the lead source.
0: That's awesome. That's a pretty decent conversion rate from blog posts. We tend to find that blog posts actually don't convert as well as, you know, just general general uh, commercial intent site traffic. So you guys obviously put a lot of work into your blog. Do you have any, I mean, firstly, are, are you happy to talk about how you choose blog post topics? And is that something that's in in your sort of part of the business?
1: <laughs> Good question. Yeah, it's frankly not. Um, like I hadn't chosen any of the blog posts in a while. I have people on my team say, hey, like what kind of stuff should we post about? And I say, you know what, I, I don't want to tell you exactly what I think all the time. But I'll tell you like some ideas for what the framework might be. Like, why don't you just go talk to customers, build a customer advisory board that's going to give you some better input than I can because you can't rely on me all the time. And so I really tried to build a business around like me teaching people how I might think about something. But beyond that, they're really going to be on their own.
0: So, I mean, your blog posts seem to be really, obviously really, really well targeted to, to your perfect target customer, but they they seem to be very much focused on giving insights behind the numbers, right? So I'm just looking at one now, what your budget says about your business's priorities. So this is not, you know, maybe answering one of their top questions. This is any, you know, this isn't, you know, I, th- I think some people might go down the line if they're running a business like yours are saying, you know, let's give some advice on on tax prep, or let's give some advice on new regulation that's come out. Well, actually, right. you're kind of sharing the sorts of insights that you'd be sharing with your customers anyway, right? Does that does that kind of make sense?
1: Yeah, that makes total sense. And we, we actually did originally, like my team wanted to put down more accounting and tax related topics there. And, you know, frankly, Business owners don't care about that stuff. Like they're coming to us because they want to not have to care about that. They want to be able to focus on more important topics. And that's also what I want from their Indonero experience as well. And yeah, when we talk to customers there, they're just telling us, you know, I want to learn about like, like I'm curious about budgeting forecasting. I'm curious about how I can save money on taxes and the benefits if I talk to you about that, but I don't really care about the nuances of actually doing it.
0: I love your idea of creating a customer group that you ask and and you find out what they want to know and then you let that guide your blog post. You're not heading straight to a keyword tool, are you?
1: (laughs) Oh, yeah. I mean, I used to do that, though. I'll be honest. Like, I kind of rank ordered, all right, what are people going to search for? And But then the conversion rate beyond that is also really critical. Like, for us, we're really focusing on quality of customer, not just quantity of customers, which I, I don't think a lot of, companies necessarily care about in software. And I, I think like we didn't really care that much either. And it's kind of bitten us because we just let in everyone and we're starting to realize that we want customers who fit a certain profile. They they're growing their businesses, they're engaged, they want to delegate. You know, there are certain personality profiles that you want in a customer and you want to, you know, kind of set the expectation up front. And, you know, we didn't do well when we had customers who said, all right, I just want set it and forget it accounting. Well, actually, accounting's not just completely set and forget. Like there's some stuff you have to do there. It's like if you buy Salesforce, it doesn't mean that your sales problems are going to be fixed. If you buy HubSpot, your entire marketing funnel is going to be perfect and all your drip campaigns are great on day one. Like, no, you actually have to go in and use it and do some things in order to make sure that you're getting the outcome that you are hoping for. That really applies to us as well.
0: Yeah, that's 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 cool, and it's I guess it's like a Ferrari, isn't it? Just because you drive a Ferrari doesn't mean that you're a really good driver. It just gives you the potential. It just gives you the tools that you need to go really fast or whatever. And right, I suppose it's a similar sort of thing. Obviously, your your lead generation and your your marketing process now involves the human element, the, the talking to someone, which immediately makes it more challenging than signing up for an ebook or signing up for a guide. If someone goes onto the Indonero site and they click on talk to an expert what's the sort of process that's happening behind the scenes in order to get them from being in that stage where they're interested to talk to someone to get them as an Indonero client, if they're a good fit?
1: Yeah, good question. So once they, I mean, if you just download an ebook or something, then, you know, we'll have your info and we'll send you other great materials. But then if you go straight to talk to an expert, then, you know, you just schedule a call to talk to someone and they'll, they try to just ask the prospect a lot of, Questions about like, hey, like, what are your needs? What are your challenges right now? And um, you know, really just try to help them, give them the best solution, whether it's with Indonera or with someone else. And then, and then that's it. So it's really just one or two conversations before they're likely a customer.
0: Were you willing to share what your sort of conversion rate from those appointments to signups is?
1: Yeah, sure. So from appointment to opportunity, I would say. So like, we actually mark them as a high quality quality person who's likely to potentially sign up that's going to be anywhere from 20 to 40 percent depending on the lead source and then from there the actual conversion rate is going to be anywhere from 40 to as high as 75 percent depending on the lead source
0: okay so between 20 and 40 percent of the people that come in through that talk to an expert are qualified right or high quality Is, is that right they're high quality
1: and they're interested. And then they move on to what we call, you know, qualified opportunities. And then once they're a qualified opportunity, by the way, they could go through the entire funnel in one phone call, but that that's not, that's not gonna happen every time. Once they're qualified opportunity, then from going from that to closed, like actual customer, that's gonna be anywhere from 40 to, you know, like it, it's a wide range depending on the lead source. I'm telling you, it's really bizarre when I look at the numbers but it's between 40 and 70% at, if they're qualified, which is, I think, pretty high.
0: Yeah, that's that's super high. So you said it obviously varies according to lead source. What, what are the best sources of leads that you, you guys are finding to bring the highest quality customers at the moment?
1: Referral, actually, referral and partnerships. So when I first started the business, I came up with this this idea where if a friend of mine, who became a customer, if they referred another friend to Indonero, I would give them a free month of service, and their friend would get a free month of service as well. And I always wanted to do that because I don't know. I was just talking to what's his name. Have Have you heard of uh? There's this book called Word of Mouth Marketing by this guy named Andy Cernovitz. Have you heard of heard of this guy? So I met him at a conference when I was 16 years old, and. I told him about this. I'm like, like, huh, like if you're doing a referral model, you got to you gotta give both sides uh, some sort of a, a gimme. And he's like, yeah, that's exactly right. So I always wanted to test that. So I did it in arrow, And that's that's really how we added. We probably got to like 50, 60 customers just through uh, word of mouth and, and the referral program, actually.
0: Wow, that's killer. So that's like the kind of Spotify, give people an invite and... You don't even have to run paid traffic to that, right? You just get a few people, and as long as they start referring, then it, it kind of scales in a viral manner.
1: Yeah, it's semi-viral in in that regard. The thing is, it it was really hard for us to scale that over time because you have to um, you have to know like the trigger points. You have to make sure you really mention it and remind people because there are many customers of ours who who, if I said, "Hey, you know about a referral program," they'd be like, "No, I don't." And that's because we mentioned it once in the first call. We mentioned it in some marketing email that probably went into, you know, they probably looked at it, but they didn't like really read it. And so, you know, you got to really engage people and remind them a lot more than you think. Otherwise, it's not going to be successful. But when it's successful, it really works. Like the conversion rate is so high. Like the total overall funnel is for every referral that we'll get, 50% of them will become a customer versus like overall, like it's going to be like, you know, other leads is going to be like sub 0.5% for the entire funnel.
0: That's crazy. So you're finding that you have to you have to keep on at people about this referral scheme, right? So you're mentioning to them over the phone, are you following up with email as well to get them to refer?
1: Yeah, it's phone up front, then phone again, on their setup and onboarding process. And then all along, basically just nurturing the relationship. And and so, yeah, you just have to remind them over email. It's not that effective. Like you could email them a bunch of times about it, but unless you talk to them over the phone about it after they had a really good experience, that's really the only way.
0: Yeah, that's interesting. I think the tendency would be that, we, you, you know, I'm English, obviously, where a lot of people who are listening are British and you kind of ask someone something and if they don't do it immediately, you're like, oh, okay, okay, sorry, sorry to disturb you. So the tendency might be, even if we have a referral program to send out an email or mention it once. And then if someone doesn't sign up, you think, oh, yeah, they're probably just not interested. Whereas you're saying, actually, you know, keep on at them and they will eventually.
1: Yeah, exactly. And there's a way to do it, too, where you say, hey, like, I'm wondering if you know any other people who would be like down for something like in an (laughs) arrow. So it's just like really casual. It's not. Not like, oh, do you have any other people you would love to refer to me? Like, no, you like you treat it like a casual. You're talking to a friend conversation and like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I think I might know somewhere one or two. I'm like, oh, yeah, cool. Like, hey, just so you know, I've got this referral program. Like, I'll give them a free month and I'll give you a free month, too. And then like, oh, that's awesome. So you kind of put the carrot out after you make the ask instead of up front,
0: which is what a lot of people tend to do. So you don't give the game away completely. You're just asking them really casual way, just get to get them thinking, and then when they are, answer, you say, "Okay, cool. Well, here's what's going to happen if you do."
1: Yeah, that, that that's how I've gotten the most effect from it. I mean, I've tried it in pretty much every variation you can imagine, and I I haven't run like my own analysis, like quantifiable analysis on this the way I'm sure you would really insist, but <laughs> <laughs> um, a lot of it's stylistic and. And I'm sure someone else will try another variation that will be more effective than what I just proposed.
0: Well, what's that, so when you're sending someone, the you, you mentioned the 50%, are you then capturing their referrals contacts So you do outbound or are you sending them over to a page so they can sign up or what's the process after that?
1: Yeah, the key is a custom email introduction. So I think a big mistake a lot of companies make is they say, oh, yeah, I just send the referral to this link. And sign up from there. And that's just so impersonal. And that doesn't really do a personal relationship the justice it deserves. So I say, you know, make an email introduction and we'll take care of them. And also, we could afford to do that because each customer has, an, has a lifetime value of somewhere in the $30,000 plus range. Whereas a lot of, you know, small SaaS offerings, like you're going to make 500 bucks off of them over a three, four or five year period. So, So I think like if you're delivering more value, you can justify a higher price point. If you justify a higher price point, you can do more manual custom stuff to get customers in the door.
0: That's very true. And all facilitated by you offering this much higher level concierge service that involves actual humans and actual effort rather than the kind of easy option that I guess a lot of people would choose if they're running a startup, which is just build some app and let the app do this stuff for us.
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I mean, it comes down to like, A, are you willing to do this business for 10 years? Like, I think you got to come back to that basic question. Because if you are, that unlocks so many new doors. Like, then you can really invest in fixing all of the problems a customer could possibly have as it relates to your space. Like for the back office, accounting is just one part. Taxes is another. Then you have payroll. Then you have health benefits. Then you have business insurance. Then you have business modeling, budgeting, forecasting, other metrics and analytics you can provide to them. I mean, there's just so much we can do here, but there's no way we're going to do it all if we're like, oh, you know, I just want to make this a business and flip it in five years. Like, no, I want to hold this business and keep it private for decades if I can. Or longer, who knows, right? But you got to ask yourself that question up front and figure out if you're really, if you're really cool with that.
0: Thank you so much for taking us behind the scenes of, of, of the marketing. To just to wrap up, I, I want to ask about this whole thing about taking investment versus building a profitable business. When, when people ask us, you know, for marketing help or whatever, and, and they say, you know, we we, we want to prove the concept so that we can get some funding so that we can grow, it sometimes makes me a little bit itchy. Oh yeah, with. that makes me the chief. <laughs> <laughs> it's I totally it's get almost it. like the goal of the business is is just to get investment. And then once you do that, oh sweet, we're done. Whereas really a business is you know it's there to generate profit, isn't it? So what what's your take on it as someone who's done a bit of both, I guess, starting with investment, but then also being in a place where you have to you've had to build from the ground up using your own money. How how do you look at investment now?
1: Yeah, now I look at funding as a way to kind of get off the ground if you've got nothing and you really need to make some salary or pay for some employees. But at a certain point, like your flywheel should be running. Like I raised, what, 11 million in equity and many millions more and uh, debt financing on top. Um, so what, probably over $20 million cumulatively. But thing is, uh, I probably could have done the business for half the cash. And by having the extra cash, I got kind of sloppy, to be honest. And that's funny, too, because a lot of my other investors are like, why are you raising more money? You're raising so little. Or I'm so impressed that you've gone so far with so little money. I I just (laughs) think that's hilarious because I'm thinking the complete opposite. Um, So my relationship with it is it can be good in certain circumstances, but you're probably still going to waste the money and you could probably get by with less, even though you think you need more. So, yeah, I get really itchy when I think about that.
0: And going back, would you have changed anything? I'm guessing the experience kind of helps you learn a, a huge amount of, about the world of business.
1: Yeah, I, 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 I did. I think I would have. Man, there's so much I would have. We, I, we could use like another two or three podcasts to go through all the regrets and things I would have done differently. I'm just really thinking right now about all the money I wasted on stupid stuff. And, uh, you know, I didn't, yeah, I didn't spend my money wisely in some areas. And the biggest way that manifests is in hiring people who aren't the best culture fits for the business and or hiring people who are mediocre and not great and or hiring people who are great at doing activities that don't impact your metrics in any meaningful way. So, for example, you could hire people to create materials for your blog and create ebooks and stuff like I have. But if you can't quantify the value of that in terms of closed one business and measure the ROI of that specific person, then there's a good chance you're probably wasting money and you don't even realize it. And that's what we did on marketing. So people are like, oh, why don't you have a fancy blog and all this stuff, what, a year and a half ago. And it's because I couldn't quantify it and my marketing leader couldn't do that. So I fired that person and I like had a, I fired a lot of people on my team because they couldn't give me like the right metrics. Whereas now, now, I can quantify that a lot better and I have a good person to track that stuff. So I'd say I, I wish I quantified the ROI of every team and every person a lot sooner than I, I did. And then I would have been able to probably raise even a third of the funding I raised. I, I don't think funding is bad per se. I just think most people abuse it looking at funding for the wrong reasons.
0: Really, really interesting. Thank, thank you so much, Jessica. It's been absolutely fascinating uh, hearing, hearing your experience and, and hearing your insights around this. Super inspiring what you've built with Indonero as well. W- where can people find out more about you and Indonero?
1: Yeah, thanks. Well, I mean, you've got a blog, blog.indonero.com and you can always send me an email too if you ever have questions or thoughts or want input on your business, uh, CEO at indonero.com. That's I-N. D-I-N-E-R-O.com and uh, try to make myself available.
0: Perfect. And we'll link it up in the show notes. Thank you, Jessica, so much for sharing and thank you everyone for tuning in. Awesome. Thanks for having me.